Welcome to the beloved community, resources for activism, for creating Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the beloved community. My name is John Sheck. This is the election edition. I have three guests today. I speak with the author of The President's Butler, a fictional account of a billionaire who decides to run for president. Professor Mark Lewis Taylor of Princeton Seminary has written a couple of articles for Counterpunch in which he lays out the case for defeating both Trump and Clintonian neoliberalism. I also will speak with Oregon PTA Legislative Director Otto Schell about Measure 97, an increase in corporate tax for schools, health care, and senior services that will be on the Oregon ballot in November. I begin with author Lawrence Lamer. He's written about the Kennedys, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Morris Dees, and in his latest novel, he takes on a certain billionaire who's running for president. His novel is called The President's Butler. Welcome, Mr. Lamer, to the beloved community. Thank you. Now, the story uh, is about Vincent Victor, a billionaire showman who runs for president, as uh, told through the eyes uh, of his butler, Billy Baxter. Trump uh, really did have or does have a butler. He did have. He, 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 got, he retired, and, uh, and Tony got in a lot of trouble because he, he in, in Facebook, he said how the, the, the President Obama should be assassinated. And not not a smart thing to do in any level, and he got in a lot of trouble for that. So my my butler is not Tony Seneca. My butler uh, uh, would not Billy Baxter would not say or think anything like that. No, he's pretty uh, soft spoken. We find mostly uh, throughout the novel. Yeah, well, he's this guy. He's this working class guy from upstate New York, uh, and uh, he comes from a poor family. His mom has a little grocery store there, and he gets a chance to work in this incredible mansion up to Upper Hudson River Valley and become a footman. And that's true. That Tony Seneca actually started as a footman in Mar-a-Lago, so that 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 much is true. And anyway, he becomes a footman and he advances and becomes a butler, and he identifies with this old aristocratic British life. And then who comes and buys the estate? But Vincent Victor, my Trump lookalike, and uh, and the butler. Billy goes to work for him, and it's totally different. It's a wild, wild, flamboyant man in this very different kind of life. And, and Billy is the great observer, the working-class guy, working in this house and observing this guy and, and, and describing him and understanding him. Billy Baxter, um, his butler, says of Vincent Victor that he is living as a surrogate for the majority of the American population, living the way they would if they had great wealth. Is there a truth to that with Donald Trump? Well, what, what it is is that he doesn't live the kind of uh, the understated old aristocratic idea of the, of the Boston Brahmins, for example, and of, and of the British upper class. They're kind of understated people. He's flamboyant. And in the novel, everything is gold. Everything is overdone. And that, in Billy Baxter's idea, is how... How poor whites, if they were rich, that's what they'd want. They'd want to have gold everywhere. They'd want to have the, 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 you know, this incredibly flamboyant lifestyle. So in that sense, he is living their life. The, all the gold for his uh, chandeliers, for the victor's golden uh, castles. That's, these are these malls that uh, the character in the novel uh, is building. And yeah. he purchased these uh, chandeliers, and it really shows how Victor does business. Can you describe that scene? Well, and this and this is very Trumpian as well, because I know in West Palm Beach that that Trump uh, will have these small business people, and he'll get some contract with them, 
and it comes time to pay them, and he's not he's going to pay them half, or he's not going to he's not going to finish throwing. He says, you you know, screw you. That's it. And in in the novel, this Armenian businessman in, in Jersey City goes over and gives him this contract. They have these 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 chandeliers, biggest contract the guy's ever had. He's so excited, but but you know, Trump talks him down in the price, gets him at a low low price, and the guy delivers all the chandeliers, and he comes to get the last third of the money. And and Vincent Victor says, "I'm not paying you. Your chandeliers aren't any good. They're terrible." I'm gonna I'm gonna either return them, but they're but out. If I put them up on the ceiling, people won't see how shoddy they are. You got a choice. I'm either gonna return them to, or I'm not gonna give you the rest of the money. And the poor guy walks away. And and in the novel, he does that again and again to people. And Billy Baxter is a you know white work class guy, and he doesn't like this. And and and, and the Vincent Victor uh, character just insists that Billy Baxter be there every time he does that. He, that's what he's gonna do. He considers that's what that. That's what a businessman does. It's it's just right that he's doing that, and he wants Baxter to he wants to stick it to him. And is there a parallel then with the way uh, Donald Trump does business? Exactly. I mean, he he he, he, he actually did it with a chandelier. <laughs> he did it. He did it. I can I'm sitting here. I can see on Southern Boulevard. I can see this this store that he, he did. This is exactly what he did to that guy in that store. It wasn't for all the chandeliers as there is in my novel, but that's what he does. If you're just joining us on the beloved community, my guest is Lawrence Lamer. He's the author of a new novel called The President's Butler, uh, a look at uh, the life of Vincent Victor, who is a billionaire who decides to run for president, who may sound familiar to another person uh, we know in real life. Why did Vincent Victor run for president? Because his business is failing. Is that right? Yeah, he, 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 he builds these uh, Victor's Golden Castles, these upscale-looking discount malls where he goes to China and he gets these, these, these uh, they look like designer clothes, but they're not. They're cheaply made, and he sells them in these fancy, in these malls, and they're all over the country. And he builds them up, and he builds them up, and as he builds them up, uh, he, he gives people these credit cards. So these, these generally, you know, lower-middle-class people are coming to these malls, they're getting the credit cards, they put thousands of dollars of debt in the credit cards, and in, in, in some ways, the, the, the mall is a sham. They're really selling debt. And it has to build, it's like a Ponzi scheme where it has to build bigger and bigger and bigger to succeed. And he's reached the point where he's got them all over the United States. He can't build anymore. And he's, and he's getting publicity. He's got a couple of television shows. And the publicity draw people into, his, in, into the malls. But he needs more publicity. So he decides, well, I'll run for president. It's not going to cost me much. I'll get on the tube. I'll get a lot of attention. And that'll help my mall, help the malls. And then the thing takes off. He can't imagine it's going to work. And he takes off and becomes a Republican candidate. And uh, that sounds a little bit similar to our real-life fellow, doesn't it? Uh, make sure money does. and gain celebrity? Yeah, exactly. I often wonder, he can't lose, in a sense. If uh, I'm talking about the real Donald Trump now. If he wins... Uh, on November 7th, and we, we wake up to uh, President-elect Donald Trump, Trump wins. But if he loses, he still wins. Yeah, and you know what? He's going to have his own Trump television network. He's going to be enormous. He's going to be a major figure in American life for the next decade, no matter what happens. <laughs> One, and, and a couple of his TV shows. Now you're, now we're going back to the novel again with Vincent Victor. Uh, he has the, the Vigilantes and the Great American Breast Contest. Talk about those for a second. Well, the, the the Great American Breast Contest comes first. I mean, the, the real Trump, you know, has this beauty contest, and he's obsessed with 
<laughs> part of the female anatomy. And so he's with a couple of his buddies, and they're watching one of these contests. And, you know, he says, it's just about breasts. That's what it is. That's what, why are we watching? And he gets the, uh, you know, he gets the, the report of the shows, and he shows that whenever the camera focuses on one of the contestants' breasts, the rating goes way up. So he has this idea called the Great American Breast Contest. And originally, he can't get it on one of the major networks. He has it on the lowest of the low networks, but it gets such great ratings that it goes on NBC. And for five years, he co- he hosts the Great American Breast Contest on TV, which is not too far away from reality. And then NBC, and NBC is in the dumps, and uh, they, that's why they put that show on. And then they want him to do a show called The Vigilantes. It's a show where they go out and they, they go against injustice and they go about these injustices in the world and, 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 and they come and confront them. And then Vincent Victor goes and, and then the last moment comes and confronts the, the malefactor. And uh, it's not done by the, by the journalistic part of NBC. It's done by the entertainment division. And they have these, this group of young people that from all different races and, and different costumes are going to be the vigilantes. And, and Vincent Victor says, that's okay. But he, when they leave the room, he says, no, I want to have 10 blondes. We want blondes. And the, uh, and the person who's doing the, the, the research for NBC says, rightfully so, that, uh, gee, these, these blondes, have, we get rating for blondes. Blondes are taking over everything. So let's go ahead and have the eight blondes as the vigilantes. And so they do. And it becomes an immensely popular show. What does Donald Trump really care about? He cares about himself. He cares about that. that, that that's true with Vincent Victor in this character. It's, it's all about him. And, and, and Vincent Victor is kind of envious of everybody. Everything wants everything. He thinks he deserves everything. And, and there's a quality of that in Donald Trump, too. People think he's doing these things uh, off the top of his head and doesn't know what he's doing. It's, it's, he's very calculating what he's doing. He knows this is going to advance him. He calculates everything, even his uh, his marriage, in terms of what value it will bring to him. Right, right. He's just totally self-absorbed. He's the ultimate creature of our culture. The ultimate creature of our culture. Envy is one of the things that Billy Baxter uh, mentions about Vincent Victor. That uh, at one time, the, uh, Victor says that it's uh, better to have people think you've had sex with a beautiful woman than to actually do it. Right. Well, envy, envy is, in some ways, the preeminent. It's, it's a preeminent feeling in American culture. If 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 you succeed, I don't say, "Wow, that's great! You're terrific! You've worked out! You've got you've got." No, I'm envious. Why isn't it me? Why isn't me? I don't think maybe I don't have the abilities. Maybe I didn't work hard enough. Maybe I'm not lucky. I'm just upset that you're there. You're where you are, and I'm not there. So coming up on, uh, on November 6th, what, what, what do you think is going to happen with this election? I think it's going to be very close, very close. There's this guy, Alan Lechman, he's a professor at American University. He's called the election right for the last 30 years. He's, 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 he's not a, he's a kind of moderate, he's a Democrat probably, and he, he thinks Trump's going to win. It's going to be close. That was my original interview with Lawrence Lamer about the president's butler a few weeks ago. Then this happened. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the...
I could do anything. Uh, well, now with the new videotape that has come out about Donald Trump, do, do you still feel that uh, he has a chance? Has he gone uh, over the top in terms of his outrageousness? No, I think that with these tapes, it's so deplorable, so outrageous. That that will do. We've seen what's happening in the polls. And he had an opportunity in the debate to truly say he was sorry. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And he went on this offensive. And I think what's going to happen is so much is going to be torn down in the next month before before the election. I mean, Clinton will win. But what will she win? She's, she's going to be so scarred, so uh, uh, slimed, that what will her presidency be like? And uh, I just think this country is headed for a very unfortunate time. Because he's going to spend, uh, it sounds like, his last month just, just going on the attack, just for the sake of the attack. You know, it was interesting in the debate. I mean, it was, first of all, it was supposed to be a town meeting and people would have their say. And it wasn't enough, as much of that as it should have been because these journalists always have to be prominent. They didn't, so they didn't allow it. But even when they did that, it was interesting when they'd ask Trump a question, like that young Muslim woman asking a question about how Muslims are treated. He doesn't talk to her. He just pivots and talks to the camera. The same with the questions to him. He doesn't have any human contact with anyone. He's a creature totally of the media, a creature of the two. He's brilliant at that, but he's gone as far as that as he can get. And he's got his hardcore supporters who are even more defiant. But he's going to lose overwhelmingly. And uh, is that similar also to the character of Vincent Victor? Yeah, well, Vincent Victor, if Vincent Victor was a, is a lot smarter than Donald Trump, if Donald Trump did what Vincent Victor did, he might well have been, ele- been elected. But Vincent Victor, in the end, has more self-control than Donald Trump does. T- Trump, t- t- uh, Trump is so egomaniacal beyond imagination. His attitude toward women, it's, just, it's always just about him. Nobody, no one else is in his life except for Donald Trump. In this case, uh, reality is more strange than fiction. No, no, and that's why in my, in my portrayal of Vincent Victor, I knew that if I made it, he, he, that Trump is a satire himself. So I couldn't become more satirical. I couldn't become more exaggerated as people have done in trying to satirize Trump. So I pulled it back a little and have a somewhat more realistic portrait, which I think uh, helps us understand the phenomena of, 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 of a Trump-like person and where it leads us. And one more time, tell me, what is the phenomena of Trump in regards to American culture today? Well, tr- tr- Trump takes all these disparate things that began quite a while ago. For example, the obsession with, with, with celebrity. He's, he has something with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know Schwarzenegger well because I wrote about it. He has the disenfranchised uh, white working class that went from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. What does he know about them? George Wallace, who was the original person to go after that constituency, was a member of that class. I mean, Trump doesn't know these people. He's hardly ever talked to them in his life. But he's such a shrewd person that he's been able to take these things together and, and build this phenomenal campaign. Lawrence Lamer has been my guest on on The Beloved Community. He is the author of the novel uh, The President's Butler. Uh, Thank you uh, so much for this novel and and for your insights about Donald Trump. Okay, thank you very much. From Trump to Clinton. Is there as much of a difference as we might think 
Professor Mark Lewis Taylor of Princeton Theological Seminary says, not so much. We'll talk about two articles he wrote for Counterpunch in which he says the time is now to defeat both Trump and Clintonian neoliberalism. Next. I want to grow up to be a politician and take over this beautiful land. I want to grow up to be a politician and be the old U.S. of A's number one man. I'll always be tough, but I'll never be scary. I want to shoot guns or butter my bread. Mark Lewis Taylor is the Maxwell M. Upson Professor of Theology and Culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. We're going to discuss articles he wrote for Counterpunch, one in July called The Time is Now, to defeat both Trump and Clintonian neoliberalism. Then in September, he followed it up with another one, Fearing Trump and Voting Clinton, some FAQs. Welcome, Professor Taylor, to the beloved community. Uh, thank you, John. Glad to be talking with you about this. Well, tell me a little bit about your intent uh, for these articles. Yeah, well, both of them, uh, when begun back in July and continuing throughout the electoral season, uh, and I was thinking many of these thoughts from the very beginning as Trump began his love affair with the media and began to rise uh, in the Republican polls, that uh, we need to see Clinton and Trump uh, as sharing some common ground. And I was trying to make that point against the common assumption that they are a binary, when in fact, I see, as I argue in these two pieces, that Trumpian authoritarianism and Clinton's neoliberalism, as it's often called, and we can talk about that term later if you like, Trump's authoritarianism and Clinton's neoliberalism are actually co-partners in one system of rule. Uh, of U.S. imperial rule and domination by U.S.-led uh, capitalism in the in the present time. Uh, Trump's authoritarianism is often a bitter fruit of the kind of geopolitical order and rule that uh, Hillary Clinton and the corporate elites of our time often champion and defend. Yeah, you mentioned in there that uh, Trump is really the result in, in a sense, of this neoliberalism of uh, Hillary Clinton and her predecessors? Uh, yes. Uh, and let's do clarify this notion of neoliberal, neoliberalism, because it's often uh, used uh, very quickly and easily um, on the left, and we often don't say what we mean by it. It's, it's a word that has come to stand for coercive uh, U.S.-led capitalism. And it's usually a, a form of economic arrangements between the U.S. and other countries, but also within the U.S. increasingly, that backs up exploitative economic policies with force, military force, carceral police force, surveillance tactics, and the like. Uh, some people call it militarized imperial capitalism. Um, and to make that work, you need both smooth-talking corporate elites that use democracy language uh, free market language, when in fact the market is not free, uh, and so on. But then you need to back it up with the authoritarian figure. And Trump is that. He looks like the bully that has been at work in many other countries as allies of the United States around many parts of the world. So without saying that Trump and Clinton are identical, I have been trying to make the point 
uh, and it's a difficult one to uh, get lodged in the public mind, that they are co-partners in this joint system of rule. I, you know, I was thinking they it's almost like uh, the same empire with two different faces. If I was coming from another planet to see this action, for example, uh, after the debate, uh, just kind of a, a Jerry Springer show, uh, it, it seems like we're all set up to be duped. Well, in a way, yes. Uh, I was thinking about the second round of debates between Trump and Clinton that we saw just last night. We're speaking the day after here. And uh, on the video screen, you saw one candidate, Hillary Clinton, returning to her cushioned uh, stool to sit uh, politely for the most part and wait uh, her turn to speak. And then you saw a menacing, prowling, bellicose Donald Trump in the background with uh, the familiar jutting jaw. And while it looked like a study in contrast to many Americans looking at the screen, for many poor countries and poor communities in the United States, that combination of the smooth elite and the authoritarian figure are experienced simultaneously. They have different roles and uh, have different functions at times, but a similar goal of maintaining a certain kind of rule. And this is why I argued that we need to defeat Trump and Clinton together. And uh, ways that we do that will change, of course. Well, the difficulty, of course, is uh, that we are getting the message. Those perhaps who voted for, say, uh, Bernie Sanders or, or, or want something uh, like you're suggesting to say, well, it isn't the time now because we have to get rid of uh, the really bad one. That, uh, that, that there's no time for the third party kind of uh, uh, set up right now because we've got Supreme Court justices at stake and so forth, that, uh, that Trump uh, is the greater evil. What do you say to those arguments? Um, I say that, first of all, I understand it. Uh, I am not one that ridicules uh, the person who feels like the authoritarianism of Trump is the greater evil. Uh, actually, the greater and more massive evil, I think, is the neoliberalism that continually deploys and brings Trump to other lands and then brings him, as we have it this year, to the U.S. mainland. Um, and if someone thinks that they have to throw a Clinton vote at Donald Trump to take out someone who increasingly has become identified with uh the worst of supremacist leagues in our society, such as the Fraternal Order of Police, which has endorsed him, uh, and other white supremacist groups, if they feel that they have to throw a, their Clinton vote at Trump, um, well, so be it. If that's the case, though, then on November 9th, after the elections, we need to work to forge an alternative party that will oppose Hillary Clinton's neoliberalism because otherwise we're going to get more Trumps coming down the pike and maybe some more effective ones that can consolidate rule better than Trump has so far been able to do. I'm speaking with Mark Lewis Taylor, who wrote a couple of articles for Counterpunch. Uh, one is The Time Is Now to Defeat Both Trump and Clintonian Neoliberalism. Uh, he wrote that in July, and then in September followed it with uh, Fearing Trump and Voting Clinton, some FAQs. At the beginning of your first article, you made a quote, uh, you posted a quote by Mumia Abu-Jamal that said, If Trump is the price we have to pay to defeat Clintonian neoliberalism, so be it. So I 
I'm kind of wondering about this. If now, a few weeks before the election, you're, you're saying that you understand if someone who throws a Clinton vote against Trump to stop him, are you not now admitting that Trump is or has become a price too high to pay for defeating Clintonian neoliberalism? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I like it. I think it's important to remember, though, that, as I said in my article originally, these are the kind of issues that because of changes in the political deep terrain below the elections as well as in the elections, ultimately history is going to have to complete the writing of my essay. And I still believe that. So there are two points to make, though, about what history has given us since the July writing of my essay. First, um, among many developments, the movement of Republican corporate elites over to Democratic Hillary Clinton has allowed Trump to stand, indeed forced Trump to stand in a new light. He has to, namely, appeal to and consolidate the white alt-right, as it's sometimes concerned. And by the white alt-right, I mean uh, a force of white supremacist repression that is organized within the police, within prison guard units, and white militia ranks across the country. They've already, of course, grown strong under Bush and Obama. But without the cover of the Republican elites, democracy language, and without the cover, a lot of the neoliberal phrasings that those corporate elites share with the Democrat corporate elites. So I can understand that with him grown strong in that new way, without the Republican elite backing that he had at an earlier point and that it looked like he might have, many would think that it is best to parry him on November 8 and push him back underground along with his white bullies and gangs. So uh, that's, uh, that's an important point that makes me understanding a, a new development. But then secondly, I would say this, in a way the American people have already paid a price, paid the price of having Trump around, even without a Trump presidential regime. Uh, he has uh, sullied the entire electoral process. Even mainstream media types talk about the ick factor, uh, the brutal kind of rogue display that he puts on, and indeed the kind of retaliatory language that uh, Clinton has at times used. They both have descended into an, an abyss that uh, many see as a very high price indeed for the American people to have paid. But also, even at, in the, by the time of the second debate, um, Clintonian neoliberalism has taken some hits from Trump. Trump has gotten in some critiques that are not without foundation, as inexcusable and outrageous as his sexual assault language was, which he tries to diminish as locker room talk. Um, he's not wrong to point out that there's been misogyny in democratic regimes and even in the White House under Bill Clinton, and he's been caught at it right in the Oval Office. He's not wrong to point out, as Vijay Prashad, a scholar, stresses that ISIS is a product of U.S., Iraq, and post-Iraq policy under the time of Obama and Clinton. He's also not wrong that um, uh, Hillary Clinton and the neoliberal Democrats also take tax loopholes. Uh, her donors, her friends, expect her to maintain some of those loopholes as, as she goes into office. So he's not wrong to point that out. All that is to say that 
Clintonian neoliberalism has taken some hits as the American people have paid to watch this Trump figure uh, do his will. And uh, Clinton has not come off looking well. It's interesting to me uh, that uh, right now the Twitter campaigns uh, the hashtags about first sexual assaults and all these are, this is a very important and positive development in some ways, but the rage is powered largely by white man Trump having violated predominantly white women. And I have to ask as a person who knows Central America over the years and knows how Hillary Clinton's Honduras policy uh, for example, has resulted in massive sexual assault and torture of women and their families and many others. It's almost as if the daily sexual assault and torture that makes up the business as usual of Clintonian neoliberalism doesn't matter to white people in the United States. It's only when a rogue figure like Trump stands up and shows his not only ugly side, but inexcusable and prosecutable side that then uh, it is said that Trump's uh, campaign is imploding uh, and it has to be organized uh, against. So uh, that development um, is very important. I think Clintonian neoliberalism has already been damaged by the price that people have paid to have Trump where he is. Mark Lewis Taylor, my guest, uh, professor of uh, theology and culture at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, talk about that background of your academic background your and, and the, the work that uh, has inspired your thought here. Yeah, um, first of all, I, as a Christian theologian, I, I have a, a mode of political thinking that pivots around an interpretation of the crucifixion of Jesus as a political event. The crucifixion was Rome's primary way of removing politically critical or politically inconvenient upstarts, and thousands were so removed. It's no accident that Professor James Cohn of Union Seminary strikes an analogy between lynching and the cross. Both were public service announcements that said, act up, step out of line, or this is what the imperial uh, state will do to you. So these political issues are not tangential to my understanding of what being a theologian is. More experientially, if I could just give two examples, uh, since the 1970s, I've been involved in prison activist work, and I have seen progressively what's happened across the decades of the 70s and 80s and 90s into our current period, where we have a four to six-fold increase in our prison population. Indeed, not just the mass criminalization of a population, but the emergence of a carceral state or prison nation, as we often see. So uh, I, I know how central the democratic regimes have been to building that up as much as, if not more than, the Republican law and order ideology. Um, I, I've seen that from inside the prisons and in my work in prison activist movements. And then since the 1980s, I've looked at U.S. policy from the perspective of Central American nations, primarily Guatemala and South Mexico. Uh, I've intentionally tried not to uh, just tour around from country to country, but to kind of dwell in these places, to look at what U.S. policy was doing to people's everyday life on the ground. And so um, I am burdened with a certain sense that uh, 
it's a destructive modality of rule and governance that the U.S. sustains within itself when it comes to the needs of dispossessed and struggling peoples, both abroad and at home. Yeah, this, this program is called uh, The Beloved Community of the idea of, of resources for activists, uh, theory as well as practice in terms of building Martin Luther King's vision of the beloved community. And I wanted to ask you if you might contrast uh, King's vision of the beloved community and Clintonian neoliberalism. Um, yeah, for me, as you can uh, gather from my previous remarks, there is a chasm between the vision of community advocated by Martin Luther King throughout his career, but especially towards the end, and what we call neoliberal Clintonism today or Clintonian neoliberalism. The latter is about an agenda set by the the elites of the global north and uh, proxies that they can siphon off across the globe. King's vision of the beloved community was for the whole community of humanity but began with, and this is a point stressed by Cornell West very well in his book, The Radical King, the beloved community began by acts on behalf of the radically unloved. In other words, it works from those who have been dispossessed, in our day, dispossessed by the neoliberal global regime. That's the way you build beloved community out of solidarity and movements for the radically unloved. That Clintonian neoliberalism does not do. Um, But the powerful force, I believe, uh, both as theologian and as political strategist, is born from the communities and solidarities forged among and with the radically unloved. Are there um, significant differences, though, between uh, Clinton and Trump or, say, Clinton and any one of the others who could have been elected, Paul Ryan, for example? Yes, I guess I would go back and highlight uh, what I alluded to at several points is that Trumpian authoritarianism uh, tends to uh, speak the language of leadership, of authority, of powerful rule, and it tends to dispense with the neoliberal phrasings of democracy, of progress, of humane development. Uh, which is all through the language of uh, of Clintonian neoliberalism. Uh, interventions are called humane, even when they take out large numbers of, of citizens. Um, assistance to poor countries is called uh, humane development, even though more money ends up coming back into the coffers of the lending nations of the North than actually stays in the country for the poor of those countries. Um, In other words, Clintonian neoliberalism is better at the sleight of hand that leads many American citizens to think they're engaged in a democratic uh, developmental assistance project for the globe instead of the exploitation that, in fact, it is. Uh, The Trumpian authoritarians will be more comfortable with simply talking about a great America And it has its greatness, even if it has to sacrifice people to get to that position of greatness. Okay, it's Wednesday after the election. Clinton gets in, as it looks likely. What is the action now uh, that needs to be taken to stop the most terrific aspects of Clintonian neoliberalism? Indeed. And that means working with wherever the Sanders supporters have gone, uh, 
wherever the Green Party folk are who need to work more closely with the movement for black lives. It means enabling the movement for black lives and and Asian and Latinx peoples to uh, work together um, um, against neoliberal capitalism and uh, parties like Socialist Alternative um, and others that have been completely off the map of conversation in all of this back and forth about Trump versus Clinton. Mark Lewis Taylor, author of uh, The Time is Now to Defeat Both Trump and Clinton Neoliberalism. That was came out in July. And then in September, a follow-up with uh, Fearing Trump and Voting Clinton, some FAQs. Uh, Professor uh, Taylor, thank you so much uh, for being with me today. All right. Thank you very much, John. If presidential politics are not motivation to fill out your ballot, Measure 97 might be. Over $16 million has been spent by those opposing it, mostly corporations. Well, what is it and what will it do? Oregon Parent Teacher Association Legislative Director Otto Schell talks about it next. Otto Schell is the legislative director for the Oregon Parent Teachers Association. He's with me to talk about Measure 97, what it will and will not do. Welcome, Mr. Schell, to the beloved community. Thanks for having us here. Glad it's to have you here. important conversation for the state. We are $2 billion short of funding Oregon schools, according to the state's quality education model. What's the need? What's the situation with Oregon yeah, schools? I'm glad. Actually, it's an important place to start from the PTA angle because we, we know what $2 billion looks like in the classroom. It means large class size uh, lost programs, uh, kind of uneven uh, ability to deliver programs. If programs get created, then the, the revenue slows down. Those those things get shed. It's, it's no way to run a school system, let alone any other public uh, entity. Uh, what that the quality ed model? It's a creature of the legislature. The legislature created it uh, quite a few years ago, and it, it is the requirement of the legislature to report out where we are on funding schools. Really, it, it's also tied to they have a duty to fund schools, but if they can't fund them, then they have to issue this report that says why. And when you look at the quality ed model, it, it requires certain things like class size, counselors, librarians, music, art. Uh, physical education, all the things that you and I know kids need. Um, well, we're falling short on a lot of those things all across the state. Some communities are able to use local, uh, they, they pass local options, uh, levies, um, the backfill, but still when the state doesn't meet its duty, then you, you really have a hard problem uh, to backfill in a sustainable way. Uh, we need the state to step up and we think Measure 97 is going to help that. Well, before we get to 97, how did we get into such a state uh, to begin with? So as relates to funding schools? Yes. You bet. Well, so um, in 1990, Measure 5 passed and Measure 5 was voted in by the voters after several tries. I don't remember how many tries, but it was brought as a uh, uh, controlling uh, property taxes. So it was similar to what California had done years ago um, on Prop 13, as I recall. Um, 
So Measure 5 was created to cut and cap uh, property taxes. There were, there were some uh, follow-up uh, uh, ballot measures, uh, 47 and 50, that Measure 5 and, and its ugly cousins, 47 and 50, as we sometimes refer to it, um, they brought us uh, reduced property taxes and the requirement that the state of Oregon fund schools. So we switched from a property tax uh, funding plan to an income tax, mostly personal income tax and lottery. Um, and of course, when the times are good, personal income tax roars in lots of revenue. When times are tough, it drops like a stone. Property taxes is historically very stable. It gives you a predictable amount of money to run your services. And it isn't just schools that were impacted by Measure 5. It was local government services, too. So um, that, that gave property relief, tax relief, and it, it limited the, the growth of programs, but it completely disconnected property tax from funding schools. There is a small local component. It, it is uh, dwarfed quite substantially by the the proper the requirement that income tax pay for schools. And now uh, we were in a position which is almost hard to believe that Oregon is dead last in corporate taxes. And it, that's the, the goal of Measure 97. Talk about that. Right. Well, and, and um, that is a creature of, uh, they definitely big companies and corporations received a benefit under uh, Measure 5. They, they both uh, private property owners and business owners, received uh, tax relief. But the, that artifact that you're describing, where we are dead last, according to the Anderson Economic Group and Ernst & Young, two uh, kind of business-friendly entities that talk about where, where are tax policies in the states. Well, they have us at, at 50th, dead last at the bottom of the pile. And what that means is in a former time in the 70s, uh, the revenue that flowed to the state was about 17% coming from corporations. Now it's in the range of 7% and it's trending down. What that means then is you rely additionally on personal income tax and the lottery. And that is that is an unsustainable plan under the current uh, lay of the land in Oregon. Measure 97 would require those large corporations that have had that tax advantage and have moved down to the bottom of the pile. Now they'll, they'll be required if they make $25 million in Oregon sales, and they are a C corporation because that's what Measure 97 targets, they will be required to pay 2.5% on sales over $25 million. First $25 million they pay under the existing uh, corporate minimum statute. We have a, a, the actual text of the measure up on our website. If people want to go to the Secretary of State's office, they can find that easily too. But the, we changed the um, – after you make $25 million, you pay thirty thousand on the first twenty-five million, and then you say I make twenty-six million. My company's very prosperous, and we're making a lot of dough. Uh, that twenty-sixth million, I pay twenty-five thousand dollars, two point five percent. I think uh, uh, the effective rate when you combine it with the thirty thousand is like 022 percent. So keep in mind we're taxing two point five percent above twenty-five million in Oregon sales. And how many uh, C corporations would fit under that? It's uh, there are about a thousand that we anticipate would be impacted and and be required to pay additionally. Um, they are uh, mostly eighty percent of them are uh, housed headquartered out of state. 
So that's an, we, we believe that's a really important thing for the voters to understand. Our whole effort was to not require working families and small businesses to pay more. We think they're paying a lot when you, when you look at who's sharing the burden for basic services like education and healthcare senior services. Um, but we, we believe that these large out-of-state corporations really are not paying. And, and there's a way to fix that. Um, when you go to our website, you can see who they are. It's Comcast, Wells Fargo, who's been in the news lately, uh, Bank of America, Walmart. These are the biggest of the big corporations. Many of them, you know, they are definitely across the nation. Some of them are also international in their presence. So if Measure 97 does pass, what, what kind of revenue will that look like for schools? It, it will generate uh, game-changing revenue is what we refer to it, and I believe it, it will be a game-changer when it comes to education. We in Oregon create our budget on a, a two-year uh, cycle. It's called a biennial budget, bi- biennium uh, being the, the determiner. Uh, Measure 97 would create $6 billion, billion with a B, over that two-year period. So, uh, and then the, it would start immediately, and it would generate hundreds of millions uh, rate as soon as the passage occurs. And I, I should know the effective date, and uh, I'm remiss in not telling you that. Oh, actually, here is on the sheet itself, uh, beginning on January 1, 2017. And I want to say it generates about $500 million in the very beginning that could be used to to fund schools, to, to fund services. Um, but we the anticipation is $6 billion over two years going forward. Otto Schell is my guest on The Beloved Community. He's the legislative director for the Oregon Parent Teachers Association and talking about Measure 97 coming before Oregon voters this fall. There's some opposition. Uh, there's an opposition to Measure 97. Um, you talk that uh, has about seven bullet points. I was going to run through a few of them okay, for sure. you. Measure 97 would especially hurt Oregon families, farmers, and small businesses who can least afford higher costs. A woman came up to me and says, I, I, I'm a farmer. I, I can't. I saw the ad on the television. I can't uh, support this because it's an increase uh, the cost. These costs will be passed on to the consumers. Yeah, we hear that from the no campaign. And, and the remarkable thing is, and we even created a, a, a thing that I have a, a document in my hand for the benefit of your listeners that's called the Big Corporate Playbook. And we can you can go on the Vote Yes on Measure 97 website, voteyeson97.org. Uh, under research, you'll find this Big Corporate Playbook. And why I reference that is We've heard those arguments in prior campaigns. I've worked on a lot of campaigns. I I started when my kid was in kindergarten in 1999, and here we are still fighting to get schools funded properly. Um, The the reality is most farmers are not C corporations. Most of them don't make $25 million. Um, We also know from the uh, study done by the uh, Oregon Consumers League, which is available on our website too, um, they took a, a bunch of, of kind of commonly bought things, you, things that you and I might go to the grocery store and purchase, and they compared them between a high-tax state and a low-tax state. And what do you know, a box of Cheerios in a high-tax state is the uh, same price as a box of Cheerios in the low-tax state. Um, the other thing is, you know, when you look around in Oregon, we're at the bottom of the pile on business taxes. Our prices are not substantially lower. They might be lower in some place where transportation is less of an issue or a little bit higher where transportation is more of an issue. But the reality is 
we know from both this economic study by the Consumers League, but also other economic studies, that corporate tax policy doesn't set um, prices. What what does set prices is competition, regional pricing, things like that. You know, in the brave new world of, of online pricing and, and those kinds of things, you see examples all the time where my price in Oregon is going to be the pr- same price as my family that might live in Ohio. Um, that's how prices get set in, in the the modern era. Um, the other thing is that the no campaign is going to work really hard. They know scary messages, messages that make uh, folks think that average people are going to pay this. Those are those are, are very effective, and and they've used them in many campaigns. We know that that what they're selling is not true. That this thousand set of corporations is are going to be the ones who pay. And when you look at the list, an amazing list of sixteen million and climbing dollars in uh, donations to their no campaign. It's all these big companies, many, majority, or I, I don't know if it's a majority yet, but a substantial number of them are out of state. So it's big oil, big insurance, um, you know, these big companies that not very long ago, if I said to you, do you believe that that company is really looking out for the small people, the, the, you know, the little guy? You would say, yeah, that doesn't add up. Well, we think it doesn't add up again. The scary messages weren't true back then. They're not going to be true now. Another one of the objections uh, from the No campaign about 97 is that corporations say that, guys, if you tax us here, one, pass on the cost to the consumers. And then the other one is that, uh, well, we'll do our business elsewhere. We'll take uh, we'll go out of state. Yeah, we we you know, the No campaign. This isn't the first time we've heard those kinds of arguments. We heard it on Measure 66 and 67, which is a few years ago. Um, None of those companies that threatened to move moved. As a matter of fact, more companies moved here during the recovery period because they saw that we had we had had. uh, um, a better on-ramp for, for growing uh, the business and, uh, and meeting the needs of Oregonians. So the, the other thing is, keep in mind, right now, uh, you want to move out of state. Where are you going to move? Most 80% of these companies are already headquartered out of state. So if they want to stay in Oregon and they still want to sell whatever their product is, whatever their widget is, for every uh, dollar in sales above $25 million, they're going to pay 2.5%. It doesn't matter where they're resident. They're still going to pay because it's it's a sale in Oregon. Um, and it only is on those large C corporations with $25 million or more in sales. Um, the initial $25 million is not taxed at that same rate. It's, it's at the current uh, existing statute. Um, the other thing we found, too, is that um, we believe that we'll still be at a lower business tax rate than Washington. Washington has a, a fairly aggressive business tax. It applies more broadly than what Measure 97 is proposed to do. Um, so if you move to Washington and you want to sell things in Oregon, you're still going to pay our tax, and then you're going to pay Washington's upcharge. Um, we, we know that Oregon uh, is remarkably friendly to business. Um, what we're proposing will move us from 50th dead last in corporate taxes into the bottom third. We're, we're not asking a, an excessive amount of these companies. If you wanted to move from 50th in the, in the nation to 49th, it's a billion dollars, one billion with a B. People might think, well, it's just something for nothing. Yeah, we don't we don't pretend that it's something for nothing at all because we believe that what we're asking, what we're going to require with Measure 97 is that these large companies that are previ- you know in a previous time, not very long ago, currently, um, they're taking the money out of Oregon. They they take it back to their shareholders. They take it back to their own corporate profits. We 
need for them to help us pay for basic services, education, medical care, and, and senior services. We have, we have growing needs in Oregon. If Measure 97 is not successful, we're going to be in an immediate cuts budget at the state level. And we can maybe talk about that after we go through the your list here. Well, I have one more that I want to talk yeah, about. And bet. one is the guarantee or no guarantee that the money is going to go to education, that the legislature can take the money and put it towards something else. Right. Well, again, we've heard that in the prior campaigns. We I work on the tobacco tax that was intended to raise uh, money for kids' health care, um, we heard that they had a, 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 a anti-measure organization called the uh, Oregonians for the against the blank check. So we've heard this before. The reality is the majority of the state budget, the general fund budget, that that where this money will be dedicated is it flows back to the state. The normal system that we do, that's how we fund schools and, and services. The money um, would then be uh, allotted out through the normal budget process. Keep in mind that 80% of the budget is made up of education, particularly when you take in early ed and K-12. That's a huge swath of, of the current budget. Not funded well, but it's still a huge swath. And then medical care and senior services. The remainder of the state budget includes um, public safety and a few other items like the cost of running business or running uh, uh, running the uh, the government. Um, but a majority, over 80%, I th- it's in the low 80s, um, is education, healthcare, and senior services, the exact things that we're talking about here. The money we believe, we, we know, will be redistributed within that. The other thing, uh, the, when the people say, you know, you don't know that it's going to be spent right, um, in Section 3, and I recommend that all voters go take a look at this, in Section 3, it says it not once but twice. It says, you know, it talks about the revenue generated by this 2016 Act, and then it says, and I'm quoting, quote, shall be used to provide additional funding for public early, edu- public early childhood, kindergarten through 12th grade education, health care, and services to senior citizens, period, end of quote. It, uh, and then it goes on to say that, it's in addition to the current service level. They don't get to back it out. They don't rob Peter to pay Paul. They add to paying for schools, medical care, and uh, senior services. What I'm hearing from you is that uh, the arguments against 97 are largely red herrings <laughs> to They're, fool people in, and uh, paid for by the corporations who will end up needing to pay it. it we, we are not surprised that they have an aggressive campaign to try to confuse and, and – um, mislead the the voters into how this would work um if you know for the longest time i mean measure measure five the the change from property tax to income to personal income tax in particular um was 25 years ago we've been having this conversation for a long time and every time we take a run at real revenue we hear the same kinds of things um, really, the, the the startling thing to me is that we haven't found a way to fund schools after 25 years. We think Measure 97 changes all that, and we are not surprised that the No campaign is 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 fighting hard because they don't want those big companies to to be required to pay. Um, in the past, we've heard from them, and some in this campaign, some entities have said. Well, gosh, if it was a broad-based sales tax, we'd be for it. The reality is, in Oregon, sales tax have been on the ballot nine times, failed every time. The voters don't want a sales tax in Oregon. We have a fairly progressive uh, tax right now. We rely heavily on, on personal income tax. Unfortunately, that means you start paying a lot of money as a percentage fairly early in your in your revenue stream as a, as a household. 
Um, we we recognize the resistance of the voters to sales tax. We think Measure 97 is is an elegant compromise to require big businesses to help us fund basic service. Otto Shell, my guest, legislative director of the Oregon Parent Teachers Association. If 97 doesn't pass, what what does what does that look for? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because we know the governor has been in the news recently, and, and also the folks at the state who are charged with writing the budget. Um, there's currently about a $1.3 billion shortfall, billion with a B. Um, that means we start the 2017 legislative session on the low on, a, on the on the cuts end of the budget. We also know that in addition to that 1.3 billion, there is an additional ask from the Oregon Health Authority because the federal dollars that pay for Medicaid, which we had received quite a, a, a grant to expand. Um, access for health care, that, that those federal dollars are tapering, and now the state is going to be required to pay that. Oregon Health Authority asked for an additional billion, another billion with a B. Um, and then we're, we're back to the, we're still two billion short on the quality education model. We're, we would only, we wouldn't even have the money for the roll-up costs for current K-12 uh, services. So that leaves Oregon in a tough spot. And we, we you know, from my perspective, I don't understand why folks don't make, particularly folks in the bigger business community, don't understand that we are, we have a reputation that is now getting entrenched about an inability to fund schools and basic services. That doesn't make for a good business climate. And that really ends up requiring working families, small business folks to, to pick up more of the, of the weight. Um, I was at the mayor's, uh, the mayors were gathered in Salem the other day, and we talked about that, the shifting responsibility when the feds and the state don't meet their responsibility, the local government ends up picking up the pieces. It, it's no way to run a state. It's, it's, a, it's a short-term plan. And, and really, from the PTA perspective, we're shortchanging every set of kids that roll through school, getting less and less every time. We spend more, but the reality is things cost more. It costs more for healthcare, for teachers and staff. You know, the, the, everything costs more, fuel for buses, all those things. Those are huge cost drivers. And so our, we end up balancing the budget on the backs of kids. And that's that's a really bad short-term plan. Otto Shell, my guest, Oregon Parent Teachers Association Legislative Director uh, for Measure 97. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to The Beloved Community every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I'm John Shuck. For more information about The Beloved Community and my weekly podcast, Progressive Spirit, go to progressivespirit.net. Be well. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goals of justice and freedom. Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as their brothers and sisters.